Good morning. Welcome to Salem. I, I think that the, part of the moral of that story is uh, when you're watching the Cardinals, be careful what you say to God. <laughs> uh, I love that resurrection story. I, I love it uh, because it's a story that's taking Lana from lost connection to new life in Christ. How, how much more beautiful can it get? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to ask that you uh, would pour out your Holy Spirit uh, and give your inspiration and purpose to our time together. We know that we haven't gathered here together by accident. Uh, You have something that you want to accomplish in us and through us. So give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and wills to live out what it is that you want to speak to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, it's my privilege to be here today. My name is Roger Ross, and uh, I have had the privilege of being asked by Terry to be here over the course of uh, the month of May, Uh, and I'm starting to feel like it's home now, Uh, and this is a wonderful place, Uh, and I'm really getting to know some of the congregation. I was in both of the previous services today, uh, so I got to really kind of get a feel for the 930 service uh, this time around. I wasn't uh, in that service last week, and the music, oh my goodness, the music here is absolutely stunning. Can we thank God? Oh my gosh, stunning. Thank you so much. What a, just, what a beautiful way to bring us into the presence of God. Thank you for sharing your gifts. Uh, I, I also want to say uh, thank you to all the moms who are here today. Do you have any moms here today? Would you raise your hand, those moms? All right, let's say thank you to them, all right? Yay! Uh, all of you that have ever had a mom, raise your hand. Okay, all right, good. Good, we want to thank you for that. Uh, I, I thought today on Mother's Day, it, it seemed right to focus on the most loved mother-in-law in the Bible. Uh, you find her in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. Uh, the story opens uh, with Naomi and her small family traveling from Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine in the land. Uh, They made this trek uh, kind of from left to right as you're looking at it on a map. Uh, You're moving it from the kind of the east side of the Dead Sea across the north of the Dead Sea over to the west and south part. Uh, It was not an easy journey. The route was upwards of 60 miles on foot, uh, which took somewhere between 7 to 10 days. Uh, But it wasn't the distance that made it difficult. It was the terrain. Uh, they, They had to cross... Uh, a mountainous, rocky area that would be daunting to anyone just to look over it, let alone try to walk it. Uh, It's hard to imagine how this kind of arid, rocky road would lead to a land of plenty, but there are lots of surprising twists and turns in this story. Uh, Apparently, not long after they'd made their way to Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Now, thankfully, she still had her two sons, and they both married women that were from the Moab area, and they then had their life kind of reset to a new normal. But a few years later, both of her sons died. Now, this leaves Naomi a childless widow, along with both of her daughters-in-law, Oprah, I I keep saying that, Orpah, (laughs) and Ruth. Now, this was the worst situation imaginable. Uh, Women in ancient Israel were economically dependent on their husbands and their sons. There was no insurance. There was no social security. There was no opportunity for a job. 
You know, without these men in their lives, Naomi and her daughters-in-law were plunged into severe poverty with no way out on their own. When word reached Naomi that the famine had lifted in Bethlehem, she decided, maybe it's time for me to go back home. So she started out, and her daughters-in-law followed her. But Naomi was not having any of that. In essence, she said, look, daughters, turn back to your family. Turn back to your culture. Turn back to your gods. You've been faithful to me, and I pray that God will be faithful to each of you and give you security in the households of your new husbands. But now you must go from me. And immediately all the women broke down and wept. They had all been through so much and they couldn't bear the thought of now separating from each other. With tear-streaked faces, both of the daughters-in-law declared, no, we are not going back. We are going with you. We are going to your people. And Naomi then tried to reason with them. She said, look, do you think that I will bear sons that can be your husbands? I'm too old to even have a husband. And even if I did, and if I were to have children again, would you wait until they grew up? You know, I have nothing to offer you, my daughters. So just go home. Find a new life. Trust me, this is more bitter for me than it is for you. And again, they they wept with each other. And finally, uh, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left. But Ruth was still there. So Naomi says, look, Ruth, your sister-in-law has left. She's gone back to her family and to her gods. You would be wise to do the same thing. Now go. But Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me and be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. This is one of the most powerful and poignant proclamations of love in all of Scripture. Ruth has nothing to gain here and everything to lose. Unlike Naomi, she is still young enough to escape extreme poverty through a new husband and to have children to carry on her family's name and to experience some security in a life that is often unpredictable, insecure, and brutal. But Ruth gives all that up. She literally lets go of herself. She lets go of her family, she lets go of her native land, she lets go of what is clearly the most prudent plan for her future. And she says, no, I am not abandoning you. I am not going to leave you to go back to your home by yourself. I love you too much to just walk away and never see your face again. 
I know this doesn't make sense. But I can't leave you. Not after all that we have been through. I pray to God that even death won't separate us. Now, Ruth does what love compels her to do. Even at the risk of her own well-being. I have to confess, I'm here today because someone acted as a Ruth to me. Two and a half years ago, I was serving as a senior pastor of First United Methodist Church in Springfield, Illinois. I was in my 10th year there, and just out of the, day, out of the blue one day, someone gave me a call and said, uh, hey, um, I'm from Missouri, and we're looking for someone to be the new director of congregational excellence. Uh, we got your name from someone. Would you be interested? And I said, no, not really. And they said, well, uh, could we talk about this? I said, uh, well, I guess we could talk, but I'm really not interested. I had just gotten off of a sabbatical time. I was really locked in uh, to what was going on at the church at the time. And I just, th this was just not something I was really wanting to entertain. Well, when I said, sure, we could talk, that was kind of my mistake. Because we ended up talking for about two and a half hours over the course of several conversations. And by the end of that, there was this much of God in it. And I couldn't just dismiss it out of hand. I wanted to, but I couldn't. So I talked to my bishop in Illinois and got permission to go through the interview process. I thought, well, this will be my discernment process to figure this out. And I went through, got to the final level, and drove over from Springfield, Illinois, to Columbia, Missouri, and met with the bishop in his office for two and a half hours, mano a mano. And I came out of that office, and I was less clear then than I was before I went in. And my wife was with me. We, drove, we got back in the car. We drove back uh, that three-hour drive from Columbia to Springfield, and it was a very quiet car ride. That was a Monday. The bishop said, I will call you with my decision on Friday. But on Wednesday morning, I'm in my home office, and the bishop calls. And he says, well, Roger, this is Bob Barr, and I'd like to tell you that I've decided that you're going to be the new man. I said, well, Bishop Barr, I appreciate you calling and all, but you jumped the gun because I'm not ready to make that decision. And so we had a little more conversation. He said, well, just call me then on Friday. So when my wife and I got home that night on Wednesday night, we had a little come to Jesus meeting. Because we had prayed about this countless times, but now we had the fish or cut bait. So we prayed together. And afterwards, my wife says, well, honey, what do you think? I said, I just don't know. And she said, well, here's what's come to me. I know this doesn't make any sense. I know we would have to leave the place that we have lived pretty much all of our lives here in the central Illinois area. And we'd have to move three hours further away from our college-age kids. And three hours further away from 
our aging parents. And she said, I'd have to give up a job that I really love. And you would have to give up a job that you love too. But I really believe that this is who God has made you to be. And there was something in those words that had the ring of the voice of God to me as she spoke them. That's what tipped the scale. What I didn't realize until this week is how actually I'd heard the echo of Ruth's words in my wife's words. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Now, apart from my wife acting as Ruth uh, to me at that moment, I guarantee you I would not be here today. I would not be living in Missouri. I would not be doing the kinds of things that I'm doing uh, every day uh, as a part of uh, my new role. I'd, my life would be on a completely different track than it is right now. That's what pure love does. It, it launches us on journeys that we could never have imagined now, you know, most of us have relationships uh, that are transactional, and that's the way most of our relationships kind of play out, frankly. Uh, if you give me this, I'll give you that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It kind of makes the world go around. You know, every business deal, every government deal, every personal deal is based on the premise of transaction. We all kind of listen to the same radio station in our heads, WIIFM. What's in it for me? <laughs> but not Ruth. Ruth's love is so compelling precisely because it's not a transaction. Uh, it is devoid of all self-interest. She's not looking for Naomi to scratch her back. Ruth knows that Naomi can't scratch her back. All Ruth wants to do is to love her and care for her like she is her own mother. And that pure love changes the trajectory of both of their lives. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to cover all the rich details of this story. I would really highly recommend uh, you to go home today and pull out your Bible and read through the, the book of Ruth. It's just four chapters. Uh, but it's got so much more in it than I, I can possibly talk about today. Uh, but I do want to hit some of the highlights to round out the story. Now, after Ruth refuses to leave Naomi, they go back to Bethlehem and they arrive in the springtime, right about now. Uh, and the barley harvest is on. So to provide for both of them, Ruth goes out to a field to collect leftover grain. This was called gleaning. Uh, in that day, that was one of the laws of the Israelite people, that they would leave some of the grain standing in the field for poor people and for widows and for foreigners. And guess what? Ruth qualified on all three counts. As God would have it, Ruth happens to collect uh, in uh, a field that's owned by a wealthy landowner named Boaz, who was the relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. 
Naomi then devises his plan to do some matchmaking between these two, and Boaz is so impressed with this sacrificial love of Ruth, a Moabite woman. Now, here's the thing that's so interesting about this story. Uh, there are at least six times in the four chapters of this book that talks about Ruth, the Moabite woman. Do you know why? Because the people of Israel can't get over the fact that this Moabite woman is loving this Israelite mother-in-law of hers in the way that she is because the Moabites were mortal enemies of the Israelites. They hated each other. And yet here's this Moabite woman who is treating this Israelite mother-in-law with such incredible grace and love and care. It was so inspiring to Boaz that he complies uh, with uh, their little scheme and he decides, I do want to actually marry Ruth, which, by the way, provides long-term security for both Ruth and Naomi. And in the final scene, Boaz and Ruth have a son. They name him Obed, which means servant. And they lay him in Naomi's arms, and there's Naomi, whose name means sweetness, but whose life has, has been so full of bitterness as she's looking at this newborn son, her grandson, through her daughter-in-law. And she sees this gift from God who becomes essentially a redeemer for her and her spirit turns back from bitterness to sweetness. Now, clearly, the story is, is meant to show what pure love does. And it just changes hearts, and it changes the trajectory of people's lives. But the crazy thing about Ruth in all of this is that she didn't have any idea that any of these things were going to happen to her. You know, after losing her husband, and then after uh, having this, this deep bonding commitment to her mother-in-law, her, her pure love just led her to move to a foreign land that, by the way, were enemies of her people. And then to find this new husband, which was highly unlikely in that context, uh, and then to have a son. Uh, it, it all unfolded for her once she chose to love. At no time in this story does Ruth try to engineer her life. Instead, she, she just engages with it fully. You know, we live in an age of life planning. Perhaps you're aware of this. If we want to get uh, to this spot in our lives, then we ask ourselves, well, what are the strategic initiatives that we have to do to, to get from here to there? Let's first talk about taking this step, and then when we get to this place, we'll be able to take this step, and eventually we'll get to exactly where we want to be. Anybody ever participated in that kind of thinking? Uh, I have had at least three major life plans. I'm not talking about the minor things. Uh, and I have been highly committed to each one, devoting major amounts of time and energy and resources to each of them. And none of them turned out the way I had envisioned. Not one. And, and you know what I'm beginning to realize? That I'm really not in control. I thought I was. 
It's kind of embarrassing to be at this age and coming to that conclusion, but I'm really not. Naomi and Ruth's lives seem to be so random. You know, so much of what happens to them is beyond their control. But there's nothing random that is going on in this story. You know, all along the journey, God's hand is leading them, even if they can't see it in the moment. Now, I know there have been times when my plans have just turned to toast, uh, and uh, I, I didn't, you know, know what to do as a result of that. But the truth is, you can be the best planner in the world, and things will happen to you that are unforeseen. People you love die. People move. You move. Jobs change. Relationships change. People that thought you thought that you could count on for the rest of your life leave. And people that you had no idea you would ever connect with become highly influential. I mean, I could never have anticipated even three years ago that I would be where I am now doing what I'm doing now. It not only wasn't in my life plan, it was nowhere near a radar screen within my vicinity. But, you know, here's the funny thing about it. God was in it. God was in it far more than if I had tried to make it happen. I found that there are forces that are larger than me that are turning my life in ways that I can't always predict. But God is still in it, working things out even when I can't see it at the moment. I mean, there's a prayer of unknowing that was written several years ago by Thomas Merton that describes this kind of journey. Maybe it will sound familiar to you. He says, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I will have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you, never, you will never leave me to face my perils alone. What might happen if you and I simply abandon our precious plants? Stay with me for this, on this one for a moment. 
But what, what if we simply followed what God called us to do right now? Who God is calling us to love right now? The people that are right in front of us. What, what if we quit angling? What if we stopped life planning for a while? What if we quit trying to control the outcome and just trusted God? You know, the almighty creator of the universe, the one who has all the resources of the universe at his command, the one who knows how to put all things together in just the right order at just the right time, that God. That's what Ruth did. She loved with her whole heart the person that was right in front of her, Naomi, even when it didn't make sense. She didn't do so to gain a single thing for herself. In fact, she gave up her whole life to love Naomi as a mother. And in the grand providence of God, in ways that Ruth could never have seen nor predicted, this Moabite woman, this enemy of Israel, became the mother of Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, the greatest ruler in Israel's history, this Moabite woman was the great-grandmother of King David. And if that's not enough, many generations later, one of Ruth's direct descendants was Jesus Christ, the one through whom all the nations of the world can find a true relationship with God and be blessed beyond measure. Now you tell me, is that random? You might feel like your life is just randomly floating along right now. You may not be able to see the road ahead of you or where it may end, but I want you to be sure of this, that God is at work in your life underneath the surface in ways that you might not be able to see right now. Arranging things just so. So that at the right time and in the right way, God will bring about a resurrection story in your life. You may have had some kind of rough past. Perhaps there were lots of hurts. Perhaps a number of losses. Maybe even some checkered parts to that past. Regardless, our God is faithful. And our God is a redeemer. Our God is the one who lifts us from death to life. And he's writing the resurrection story of your life right now. All you need to do is trust him for it. Let's pray. God, you know the way we are and how we want to control the outcome. Uh, how we want to be in charge and put our own plans in place. So we ask that you would help us to be people that can surrender our lives into your hands and into your plans. 
so that you can use us in the way you best see fit to be a blessing in this world. We ask that in Jesus' strong name. Amen.